Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us. We're going to open the show with our Above and Beyond the Badge segment, and we have Sergeant Sanchez on the phone. Can you hear me, Sergeant? I know you're out of town. Yes, I can hear you. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. How about you? I'm doing okay. Who do we have? Who are we going to acknowledge today? We are going to acknowledge Officer Detention Officer Roy Trejo. And what did he do? On the morning of May 3rd of this year, uh, an inmate was acting very suspicious inside our, our quarantine pod. Uh, when he came out of his cell to shower, he attempted to pass something to another inmate. Officer Trejo didn't like what he observed, therefore he ran inside the cell to see what was happening. And he approached the inmate, and the inmate hid something under his mat. Officer Trejo conducted a search and discovered 10 M30 fentanyl pills. Uh, the inmate was taken to our medical unit for observation. It was then that uh, he defecated a large amount of pills. He mm. grabbed the pills and ingested approximately 30. Wow. He then uh, got very nervous, uh, disclosed that he had three more packs inside his body. He was immediately transported to a hospital where Narcan had to be administered six times to bring him back. Um, three packs in, containing approximately 400 pills were recovered at the time. Uh, the inmate, of course, was charged with new charges for introducing contraband into the facility. But it's very fortunate to be alive uh, thanks to Officer Trejo and his fast acting that morning. No kidding. That's That's just mind-boggling that anybody would want to do that to their body just you know do yes and i'm curious is there full disclosure when he sells these pills does he have to tell them hey these were in my butt <laughs> I, I don't think so i, I don't think anybody <laughs> would want to buy them after that <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> what a tamper on the oof. well yeah i know thank you thank you to roy i mean you know it was an ugly situation, and at least the man's alive to face the charges that he's going to be faced with. That's pretty remarkable. Right. And look at all the lives he saved by stopping these these pills from being introduced into the system there. Correct. Okay. I, I want to thank you. I know you're in Las Vegas. Have a good time in Las <laughs> Vegas. Thank and you, Terry. I, I want to thank you for calling in. You take care. Not a problem. Have a great day. You too. Okay, in the studio, we have James Gamber, Pima County Cold Case Investigator. And tell us a little bit about you before we get into interrogating you. Uh, um, I started my career with the Sheriff's Department in 1987. I worked there for 23 years. And predominantly, um, I did a patrol period. Then I did some investigative assignments and then the last 14 years of my career I was assigned to homicide and what made you go into homicide or did you have a choice um, working in in criminal investigations homicide was always kind of like the the epitome of investigations and it was the most challenging the most um, exacting and it's just something I I thought would be extremely interesting and and fulfilling and as as far as was I ordered to go in there, I was, uh, the term we used was raptured into the unit. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so is it something that you, once you got there, did you stay there? Is is that? Yes. 
Yes. And how long were you in uh, homicide? 14 years. So you know a thing or two about homicide? A little bit, yes. I also know, before we get into the homicide part of it, you worked on the um, the car bombing at La Paloma. Yes. The infamous car bombing. Yes, the Gary Triano case. And how did that... How did you end up doing that? Was that before homicide, or did they know there was a homicide and dragged you in? That was uh, that was one of the first homicide scenes I ever went to. <laughs> Spectacular one. Yes. <laughs> so tell us about it. What happened? Um, essentially, I was new to homicide. I think I came into homicide in August of uh, 1996, and the car bombing was in November. So I'm at home. My sergeant called, said, we have a, a car bombing at the La Paloma Country Club. We need you to respond up there. And then it all just steamrolled for the, from there until ultimately we were able to make the arrests and convict uh, the two, two parties to the murder. How long did it take to figure out who did it? Because I know his wife was supposed to be out of town. Yes, she Refresh was. Uh, memories. <clears throat> His, his ex-wife was up in Aspen, Colorado. She'd been living there for a period of time. Um, so she was always somebody we were interested in. We interviewed her a couple times. And it wasn't until later in the case that she became the prominent focus of the case because we had run out of all other suspects. The whole, you know, mob hit idea, um, angry subject who, you know, ended up, on the bad end of a business deal. So it came down to follow the money and the insurance policy led us straight back to her. Um, through that and some work with the Aspen Police Department, she became more and more of a suspect. And then ultimately we identified Ron Young as the subject who had built the bomb and, and detonated it at the behest of Pam Phillips. So they're both in prison. Correct. They're both doing natural life in Arizona Department of Corrections. Natural life, as opposed to other other kind of life. Right. Uh, well, I guess at some point there was something along the lines of life with possibility of parole. Oh, okay. So she's not going to get out. Right. Okay. What makes a cold case cold? Now, there's various definitions, but the guidelines pretty much are if it has been, I, I want to say it's been inactive for f five years or the assigned detective has left the unit. Well, how often does that happen? Well, the, the turnover rate in homicide is, it's, it varies. There's, you know, it's a good position to get promoted from, you know, you can test for <laughs> sergeant. Yeah. Um, but as far as turnover, yeah, three, maybe four or five years isn't an unusual time for someone to move out of homicide. Okay, is that because they want to or is that because it's just time? Well, it's, it's, I think it comes down to a mixture. You have to remember that it's, it's a high-stress assignment. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of call-out, extensive call-outs. It's not unusual to be out on a... Out called out for 24 to 36 hours nonstop. So it, it's a wear and tear assignment. How many homicides have you solved? Oh, I've never actually scored myself, but I would say... <laughs> you have notches on <clears throat> something? No, I'd say probably 40. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. 
So is there a team of investigators or are you in there by yourself? There's a team. Right now the current homicide unit has eight assigned detectives and a sergeant. When I was there, it was six detectives and a sergeant. And you tend to work with one person. So you're, you work with your partner. Okay, so you've got all these homicide detectives and each one gets a different case. It's a rotating basis. Right. Okay. Have you ever had a case where you couldn't solve it and it just kind of like haunts you? I wish I could solve that case. Yes, there's there's a couple where <clears throat> you're you're reasonably sure that you know who did it, but the evidence isn't there to establish that enough to bring them before a grand jury or a preliminary hearing or to pursue prosecution. There are some out there like that. And you, and you always go back to them and try to think of, well, what else could we do? What other avenue could we pursue? Do you pick and choose now that you're not on the department? Are you able to pick and choose which cases you're going to be able to work or want um, to work? Yes, you can You can actually pick cases. We try not to re-examine our own cases yeah. Just to, you know, you may be predisposed to a certain idea versus you just have a fresh set of eyes, look at it and let them run with it. In fact, we try not to contaminate the other investigator with our opinions of the case. So if somebody was looking at one of my open homicides, I would deliberately not give them any input on the case. So they're not influenced by me. After they've done their due diligence and they're reading the case, do they ever come to you and say, hey, what about this, that, or the other? Right. Then you, then there's an open discussion. Once they've formulated their idea, their, we'll call it a plan of attack, okay. then it's it's kind of a roundtable issue. Well, that's kind of cool. How often do you guys meet? Um, we try to get together at least once or twice a month. And, and it actually, we filter a lot of it through Sergeant Isley. She's the homicide unit sergeant. And we go in and say, here's what I think. And then you essentially start communicating with the other investigators. And this is the avenue that we're going to take. So you're retired. Yes. So what you're doing now is, is a volunteer? Yes. What made you want to keep doing this? Um, it's, it's very interesting. It's very challenging. I think I bring some insight into the cases. Um, you know, there's... I hope I bring some training into the cases, experience, and it's just once you've worked homicide, it, it's kind of like you're addicted. <laughs> okay. Has has you have you ever come up with um, the Butler did it solution? The kind of the the unusual suspect. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Not so much in cold case, but in, in when I was in active homicides, yes, we, we, you'd come up with ones every once in a while. Like we had no idea that we should be looking at that person. And all of a sudden that person is prime suspect. Yes. Just somebody out of the blue. Tell me about that case. Uh, the, the case that comes to mind was the uh, murder of a lady named Bonnie Sanborn. Um, she was a... Her husband was working on the East Coast. She was taking care of the kids here in Tucson. Um, they were a little cash-strapped. The youngest son was running around as a juvenile involved in some criminal activity. And when, he, when we found... Well, we got the report that she was missing and we searched the house. There was a very bloody crime scene in her bedroom. And the stories the kids were telling us just didn't make a lot of sense relative to what we were seeing at the scene. 
So we really, it, the kids made themselves look suspicious. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that we discovered it was a former next door neighbor who was somewhat of a peeping Tom and who had actually killed her. And what threw us off is that when we did the initial canvas of the neighborhood and interviewed people at all the homes around there, he is, was no longer living there. So his name never came up. Uh-huh. And it wasn't until years later that through repeated interviews and stuff that we identified him as a potential suspect. Have you ever read a um, murder mystery novel and said that makes no sense? Uh, I don't. I, I kind of avoid the murder mystery novels and uh, and most <laughs> of the TV them. shows along that line. Yeah, because they don't make sense. Right. I mean, they just they give an unrealistic um, view of how law enforcement really works. And if you don't have it done in an hour, there's something wrong with you. Right. Yeah. You know, DNA results are today, and uh, <laughs> yeah. You know. Okay. What motivates you? What makes you, you're, I mean, you're retired. You could be sitting on the beach someplace, you know, drinking Mai Tais, and here you are investigating homicides. What motivates uh, you? Personality-wise, I think I'm the type of person that wants to have something to do all the time. And the other thing was when this volunteer cold case unit aspect was presented, it was uh, Sergeant Isley who reached out to me and I mean, I worked with her. I trained with her. She was my homicide partner for four years. So when she asked me to do something, I'll go do it. That's pretty remarkable. That's awesome. How many cases are you working on right now? Uh, Currently, this is going to sound a little statistically deceptive, as I've got six cases of unidentified homicide victims that I'm getting submitted for genealogy DNA and attempt to identify these people because frequently if you have just a deceased subject with no other associations and you don't know who they are, you can't build what the background on it. What were they doing in Tucson? What were they doing that day? You know, what led them to this place? So those are my primary focus right now. So once we identify them, then we can go to their family members and say, what was this person doing in Tucson at this time type thing? So it's we're kind of building six cases right now off of genealogy. Okay, those cases, are they homicide cases or are they people that were found dead and they don't know how they died? How? Good question. The six that I'm dealing with were ruled homicide cases. Okay. And we benefited from the uh, Pima County Medical Examiner's Office got grant money to exhume unidentified decedents. So people who died unidentified that have been buried in the uh, county cemetery, they were exhuming them to collect DNA specimens. These people were buried before DNA specimen collection was an established procedure. So what I did is I went and said, I worked with the county, the medical examiner's office with each exhumation that involved a homicide victim. So I was present to preserve the evidence from the homicide victims. And of those, I am now sending, those six that I have, I'm sending them out for genealogy, which is, we're fortunate, and there's grant funding to do this. I didn't know the county had a cemetery. Oh, yeah, there's a Pima County Cemetery. It's maintained by Pima County. It's um, 
the cemetery right at the corner of uh, Miracle Mile and um, Oracle Road. It's that's way a in county the back. cemetery. No, that's actually a a private cemetery, but towards the west end of the cemetery, yeah. there's a county Pima County Cemetery. So a sign there and everything. Oh wow! I've never paid attention. <clears throat> the so if somebody they don't know who it is, they just go ahead and have a funeral for that person. <clears throat> Or right. they don't really have a funeral. They just bury the person. Correct. I think nowadays, I think they've reverted to cremation and internment above ground. Well, there goes all your evidence. Well, but nowadays we're preserving evidence prior to the cremation. Okay. So you, you should be able to find out who these people belong to. Right. Have, when you walk up to a house and knock on the door and say, hi, you were, were you related to so-and-so? Do these people know that person is dead or do they think is he or she is just missing? Um, I haven't done, I haven't gotten to that step yet where I knock on the door from an unidentified deceased. And when I worked um, active homicides, it happened once or twice. And it always amazed me that, that um, when th- two detectives standing there in shirt and tie and, you know, guns and badges knock on the door, how people don't react that this is going to be bad news. Oh, yeah, anytime the police are on your doorstep, it's bad news. Yes. It's got to be. <laughs> but there there have been the occasions of, do you know this person? And they do know them, and they're very, very startled. But with current homicides, that delay is usually only a day or two. So most people aren't, think, aren't thinking that they're missing. You know, they just haven't heard from them type thing. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I... I just can't wrap my mind around what you do because, you know, you're retired. Let's go and enjoy something else. So is there any particular case that you would really like to get your hands on? I mean, not just Tucson, but a case you know nationally. Well, I mean, there's there's no one case in particular that, you know, I, I think this is more important than the other. Um, but there are cases that are very frustrating because you've the, we've investigated hundreds of leads. We've done all the current lab testing, and the the killer left evidence, but we haven't been able to identify who that killer is. In other words, we have DNA, but we haven't been able to match it to anyone. And they're not in the system yet. Yeah, right. They haven't been put into the national DNA database, which is where genealogy is our next big hope. Oh, yeah. It's like, who are you related to? Let's find out. Right. And the way I look at it is, let's do a hypothetical. You have a, uh, let's say, a person who rapes and murders but they have never been caught and they've never had their DNA put into the system. So no matter how much DNA I have from the scene, I'm not going to get a match. So you have this subject. Now with genealogy, I can go out and I can test that DNA and put it in the genealogy database. Now my killer has never put his DNA in the database, but his sweet, innocent niece has put her DNA in the database she now connects me to him because now I'm looking at the family tree, which will eventually lead me back to the person I'm looking for. There is a TV show, a couple, I think it was last year, about how genealogy can point to the right person. 
and it was just really fascinating to right. see how how I can't remember the woman's name, but how she profiled it right down to the person. Here you go. Right. You know, your your best hope is that the genealogy results take you to a family, someone in this family tree, and then you work your way down to the specific subject. So it kind of changes investigative techniques in that now when I knock on your door and I'm trying to find somebody who was in Tucson in 1996, I'm not saying were you in Tucson in 1996. It's, was any, do you ever know, do you recall anybody in your family ever being in Tucson, Arizona, you know, going to school, working, passing through, vacationing? Vacationing, yeah. And it, it opens the door and then you get that, you know, I do remember that my cousin worked one summer someplace, I think it was like old Tucson, and now you have a name to go follow up on. Yeah, and, and that cousin is no longer a happy family member because they squealed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick break right now, and we'll be back in a few. This is Deputy Chuke with Pima County Search and Rescue, reminding you that if you bring it in, take it out when you go. This includes dirty diapers. Littering is a criminal finable act, as well as a crime against nature. Daylight is fading and the temperature is dropping. You're not only cold, hungry, and lost in a densely wooded area, you're injured. Time is of the essence. Sarsi is a highly trained team of dedicated volunteers who work closely with Pima County Search and Rescue to help people in critical situations just like this. To join an exclusive team of heroes, go to sarsi.org. That's S-A-R-C-I.org. We need your knowledge, experience, and of course, your generous spirit. This is Amy, a volunteer with Pima County Search and Rescue. Before you head out, turn your location app on in your smartphone, then power that phone off until you need it. And in an emergency, you will need a fully charged phone. Hi, this is Sherry inviting you to join Law Matters live show every Saturday morning at 8. On our next show, TPD officer Jennifer Crawford talks about threat mitigation and how we can be more aware. Law Matters podcast can be found on iTunes, Google Play, and lawmatters1030.org. We can't do this without your support. Please help us continue to bring these live shows by contributing to our website on lawmatters1030.org. Colleen here, a volunteer with Pima County Search and Rescue. If you get bit by a scorpion or centipede, seek first aid. If you get bit by a snake, don't try to remove the venom. And with the Gila Monster, stay calm, call 911, and use a stick to dislodge its jaw. This is Nathan Chabin, producer for Law Matters. I have a goal to reach, and I need your help. I want to put the DEA out of business. That's right, the Drug Enforcement Agency. If you have an addiction problem or know someone who does, please reach out to lawmatters1030.org and click the DEA tab for more information. Reaching out is the first step. We have the resources if you have the will. You can beat this demon and help me put the Drug Enforcement Agency out of business. Thanks for staying with us. Our guest today is James Gamber. He's with Pima County Cold Case Investigators. Actually, he's retired. Tell us what uh, Pima County is doing. What's their plan to help get these cases solved? Well, currently, you know, we have the, the cold case unit is only staffed by volunteer, former homicide detectives and one former narcotics detective. And we work under the homicide unit sergeant. Um, 
The department has now expressed that they have the intention of assigning two full-time detectives and a full-time sergeant to the unit, which means as volunteers, I can investigate the case only to a certain point. I have no arrest authorities. I can't detain people. And I always use the analogy of the volunteers are like bird dogs. We'll go, we'll point to where the bird is, but you guys have to go get it. If we get the two full-time detectives and a full-time sergeant, then we suddenly, it changes the aspect of we're not just prepping cases to lead to arrest. Now we can follow through and make the arrest. And has that happened yet? Do you have, or is there a time frame when this is going to happen? I believe it's the 1st of July is when that transition should happen. Is that exciting? Yes. Um, <laughs> this is like, yay, let's yeah, go get them. It's kind of like, you know, you know, we're the racehorses, but they don't let us out of the gate. Exactly. We, we could just go to the gate, and then now we've got somebody who can carry the case through. That's awesome. That's great. So you've you've worked on all these cases. You've got all this knowledge. Are you going to write a book? Um, people have said I should. Um, unfortunately, I, I don't think I have the skills to write a book, but if, uh, if the situation arose where someone... Uh, Wants to be a ghostwriter for yeah, you? Yeah, somebody showed me how to do it. I, it I, it'd be interesting. Okay, we're, we're going to make an announcement here. <laughs> we're, Law Matters is looking for a grant writer. We're looking for board members, <laughs> and we want a ghostwriter so James can write a book because he's got just this wealth of knowledge and all these cases. Can you name yeah. any cases, or is that taboo? Um, I'm trying to... Well, obviously, I, had, I was assigned the Gary Triano homicide case. Um, I worked on the Bonnie Sanborn case. I'm trying to think of what, other... What Bonnie Sanborn? Tell she me. She was the, the mother that was killed by the neighbor. The neighbor. Um, uh, worked on the Shad Armstrong case. Shad Armstrong, uh, along with his girlfriend, killed his own sister and her boyfriend because he believed they were going to turn him in on a misdemeanor warrant out of Oklahoma, which led to... He buried them out in the uh, southwest side of Pima County in a grave six feet deep. And we only got involved in the case because it was taken in as a missing person. And following the missing person aspect of it, we suddenly um, developed interest in a certain subject, and it turned out to be that subject owned the property or lived on the property where the bodies were buried. We, We discovered the bodies and then went on America's Most Wanted and tracked down Shad Armstrong and had him extradited back to Tucson, successfully prosecuted him. Um, Who was the prosecutor? The prosecutor in that case was um, Susan Ezer, E-A-Z-E-R. And it was kind of a complex case. I worked on the, um, <clears throat> the Imel case where Kurt Imel was killed at the behest of his ex-wife and his daughter his daughter right the the ex-wife and the daughter had through their relationships with males boyfriends um developed a meth addiction and kurt was interfering with their being able to continue that lifestyle he was cutting off their funding so they actually got a third male to come in and kill kurt imel in the front yard of his tucson house and that was a rather convoluted case, and we ended up trying them both twice, but it ended up with convictions. Why twice? 
<clears throat> I forget what the legal issues were, but we ended up with the the legal ruling was we had to retry them. And okay. so we did one trial where we had, um, we presented the trial to two juries at the same time. And then we tried them separately and ended up, it was a long trial by Pima County standards. I think the trials ran like 11 weeks. Wow. That is a long time. Yes. Do they sequester the juries here ever? I don't know of a jury that we've ever sequestered. I know the potential exists, but I, I've never had a jury sequestered. Well, that's probably a good thing. So you're running around town in your London fog, <laughs> and <laughs> and people are going, oh, no, it's him again, like Columbo. Do you ever feel like Columbo? Uh, no, I think I'm <laughs> I'm a little more aggressive than he is. He's more laid back and subtle. I tend to... Um, Get in your face. <laughs> well, my my mo was more: if you're going to talk to me, I'll let you talk to me, and I if you're going to lie to me, please do. I will let you lie to me for hours because it's very easy to disprove a lie, and then I challenge you with your lies and start taking them apart right in front of you during the interview. And I tend to be more domineering and and I take over your space and. <laughs> And uh, and it's not comfortable. It's very uncomfortable for the, the suspect. But it's only really uncomfortable for them because of their guilt. I mean, they put themselves in the position. They're the ones feeling the guilt. So I don't want to give the idea that we, we're standing over you, you know, with a gun in hand and <laughs> browbeating you. But it's, it's more of a psychological approach. So... Are there any cases that you're working on now that you would like to throw out to the listeners and say, hey, if you know anything about this? Mm. We have um, one, the genealogy case that we have in the works right now is a uh, homicide from January of 1986. It was a young girl named Diane Hunt. Um, she was found way out on the east end of Reddington Road. She had been manually strangled and we believe sexually assaulted we based on the evidence we believe it was a rape <clears throat> we do have suspect dna but again it's never hit in the national database and right now we're gonna we're waiting for genealogy results to come back but it's the kind of case she was about i think she was 15 or 16 years old oh wow you know, high school kind of student not a problem child and She's got family members that still live here in Tucson, and they agonize over this case all the time. That's so sad. That's so sad. So if anybody knows anything about that case or has any information, even a hearsay, right? call. Right. Who do, who do they call? They give, can, give them your cell number. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know, they, there's, there's a couple avenues. You can call 88 Crime and give anonymous information with a potential for a reward. Yes. Um, or you can just call the Sheriff's Department main number, the 520-351-4900, and just say that you have information. Not necessarily, it doesn't have to be any specific case I've talked about on any homicide. And we'll take the information. And if it isn't a Sheriff's Department case, we'll route that information to the correct agency. Even if it's an out-of-state case, you know, law enforcement works worldwide, actually. If yes. You know, you look at the Gary Triano case, um, I ended up with a great deal of support from law enforcement out of Switzerland that stayed and worked the case with me. 
tell me about that. <clears throat> well, Pam Phillips, we had an arrest warrant for her, and um, we were able to track down that she had left the United States through Atlanta Airport, flown to Gatwick Airport in the United Kingdom, and then she just poof, disappeared into Europe. Wow. I mean, she's just gone. Um, we did an America's Most Wanted show, and I got a information from an anonymous caller that she was in a certain area in Switzerland. So I made contact with the local police in Switzerland who ultimately put me in touch with, um, it's the Swiss Criminal Brigade, which would be kind of the equivalent of their state police or FBI. Those people worked diligently, and unfortunately we weren't able to arrest her in Switzerland, but the Swiss authorities kept the pressure on and helped us track her down to Vienna, Austria, where she was arrested. What was she doing there? Hiding? Yes. Hiding in plain sight, really. But Why wouldn't she? Well, she wasn't smart enough to pick a country that didn't have extradition. To this day, <laughs> I, I, I think that's one of the moments where I was blessed. If she had gone to a country that like didn't Ecuador. have extradition, yeah. we would just, you know, we'd be waving to her. It's like the, it's a case out of, I believe, Chicago. Ira Einhorn killed this his girlfriend back in the 70s. And went to France and we couldn't extradite him from France and the FBI agents in France used to talk to him and there's nothing <laughs> they could do to him and unfortunately for him he went to Germany on vacation and was immediately arrested and extradited to the United States. There you go. People think that you forget yes. and people don't <clears throat> forget. Right. So when you've got something and you think it's an international case, how do you do that? Is it inter <clears throat> Interpol? Right. We. What you do is you work you work with the local office of the FBI, and they have contacts through Interpol, and they can make your case known to the member agencies. And if you have a specific country, they can get the case processed through Interpol to that specific country and their investigative and their law enforcement investigators. Have you ever been um, had a situation where they didn't want to cooperate with you? As far as international law enforcement? Right. No, I've never had foreign law enforcement or law enforcement anywhere say, no, we're not going to work with you on that. Do you get a lot of cases that end up right over the border in Mexico? Yes. Well, how, was, how does that work? Well, I had a homicide case where a uh, subject was murdered. His, they stole his car. They dumped it in Mexico. And a couple months after the murder, we get a call from Mexican law enforcement and said, you know, we have your stolen car down here in Obregón, Ciudad Obregón. And they said, if you need it, if it's of interest to you, come get it. And we went down to Ciudad Obregón, and they gave us the car, and we brought it back to the United States and used it as evidence. Did you tow it, or how does that work? We had to drive it back, unfortunately. <laughs> drive it back. <laughs> and hope it didn't break down. Right. Oh, wow. So normally with a case like that, you would tow it and have it processed, right? Correct. You'd seal it, you'd tow it, um, put it into an impound lot, and then you'd bring out your forensic technicians and the, the investigators, and you'd process the vehicle for, you know, fingerprints, DNA, whatever, you know, contents Fibers. of the vehicle related to the murder. Yes. So... Would it have been possible to have the Mexican police process the car? Do they process things the way we do? 
At that Probably time, not. In, at that time in the agency we were working with, no, it didn't end up that way. And in fact, they were very, very polite and courteous, and had washed the car for us oh. before we took it back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry, that that was very nice of them. Have you ever had a situation where you're talking to somebody, um, maybe somebody who's witnessed the crime, and it was just such a traumatic thing that they really can't remember what happened? Well, we've had people because of the the instant distress have difficulty in the interview and recalling and being able to communicate with you. And in those situations, you learn, you know, just back it off, shut down and revisit it sometime later, especially, you know, when it's the loved one, you know, the wife has lost her husband. It's that's a difficult time to get real accurate information. It's good to talk to them immediately, get immediate information you can act on, but it's always good then wait, you know, let them recover for some period of time, days if necessary, and then go back to them and have a more relaxed conversation with them. And a lot of those things, it works better if you actually meet them in their own home and their comfort zone. And that way they don't feel overwhelmed by the situation. Yeah, I can imagine being re-traumatized, just having to recall. I know, we go from me overwhelming you psychologically if you're the suspect to being very considerate and supportive in an interview with a witness. So you have to have these these dual roles that you play. Do you have a trench coat? No. I'm disappointed. I've never had a fedora. (laughs) I never had a fedora. We might have to get you on. Now, do families have, have you ever had a family want you to not investigate a crime? Only from the side of the suspect. Okay. (laughs) Never from the side of a victim. Okay. So, you know, does that just raise all kinds of red flags if you're not getting cooperation from the family? Yes. Now that that draws a lot of attention to them. And it's like we go back to the Bonnie Sandborn case. The kids were very standoffish with us. So they weren't, they just didn't react uh, friendly or openly to law enforcement. And that, that really raised our suspicions. How old are the kids? Oh, at the time, I think they were like, I want to say in the area of 12 to 16. There were three of them. They were in that age range. So they were, you know, naturally kind of rebellious. And they they just, we kind of invaded their space. And we were very confrontational. Where were you when, you know, and how do I know you were really there? Who can tell me that you were really there type thing? Because we had to be confrontational to nail down some issues. And I think that at first they were very alienated and that made them look suspicious. Do you have people reaching out to you from other states or other jurisdictions asking you to help solve a, a murder mystery that they're involved with? Yes. You know, we get we get calls for follow-up, I would say, on a monthly basis from other jurisdictions. You know, can you tell us, was this person ever in Tucson? Or can you find this person for us? Um, we had... Um, some investigators out of Connecticut reach out to us and say, we've developed a suspect. We know he lives in Tucson. Can you guys help us out? Absolutely. Uh, Myself and another detective went to work with him. These two investigators from Connecticut flew out here. We found the subject that they were interested in talking to. He chose not to give a statement 
Um, we How wanted, damning is that if somebody says, I'm not going to give you a statement? It, it's suspicious, but it's also their right. You know, so you, you have to kind of balance that. But it, it's one of those things that it always bugs you when somebody says, no, I'm not going to tell you anything. But in this case, they wanted DNA. And in, at the time, Connecticut didn't have what they call telephonic search warrants. So we, this guy is working at a construction site. So the Connecticut investigators are there. I'm there. My partner's there. I get on the phone. I get a search warrant from a judge over the phone. Walk up to this guy and said, we have a search warrant. We're taking your buckle swabs and blood. And these two Connecticut investigators have never seen this happen before. <laughs> you know, the, it was like, ooh. Yeah, I, I didn't see a judge sign that warrant. And <laughs> to make matters a little more bizarre, we had one of our motorcycle cops come up, and he's a trained phlebotomist. So he drew the guy's blood right at the scene. <laughs> so that we, we give all this DNA evidence to the Connecticut investigators. They go back to Connecticut. Uh, their prosecutor calls the county attorney's office here in Tucson and says, is any of this stuff legal? <laughs> <laughs> Are we on the up and up? <laughs> yeah. So it's always, we always reach out and support out-of-state investigations. We had another case where two subjects killed um, a woman and her boyfriend. Uh, the woman was the mother of one of the subjects. These two guys then loaded up their vehicle. They got money out of mom's bank account and they got stopped at the border entering Mexico. And when the Mexican customs folks were, customs and immigration were asking them, what are you doing type thing, they listened to this bizarre story and kicked them out of Mexico. So when they came back into the U.S., U.S. Customs and Border Protection held them and did a search, and they found all kinds of stuff that just made the hair on the back of their neck stand up. And... This was all connected back to a town in Montana, so they called the police in Montana who go to the house in Montana and find these two dead people. That's a little suspicious. Yeah. That, so <laughs> my, so we immediately go down and we take these kids into custody and we interview them. We get one confession to the murder. <clears throat> we take both of them into custody. We hold them. We do search warrants on their vehicles. We monitor their jail phone calls. We do all the investigative things we can do to support the Montana case, ship all this information up to Montana, and they successfully prosecuted both of them based on a lot of the work we did down here. And it's like, no questions asked. We'll dive right into it. So what's legal in here, you know, like getting the DNA from the construction guy, they go back to their state mm -hmm. where apparently it's not legal or it's not... It's not a practice. Not a practice, but it still will hold up in court. Right. Yeah. So in the Montana case, um, I was talking to their prosecutor said, yeah, I, I, I wrote a search warrant. I've already searched their car and everything. And he's like, back in Montana, it's the prosecutors write the search warrant. Okay. And they get the judge to sign it. They give it to detectives. Here in Arizona, we write our own warrants. We get the judge to sign it. So this prosecutor's like, wait, wait, wait. I need to talk to the prosecutor who wrote the warrant. I'm like, uh, we haven't involved a prosecutor yet. He was just very distraught over that. <laughs> Different systems, yeah. But if it all... But it held up in their courts. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Another bad guy off the street. Right. And it's a, it's a, it's a great thing to work with other agencies. And, you know, uh, it's, you know, in the reverse, uh, we reach out to other agencies and they're like, yep, we got guys on it. We'll let you know. Um, the Shad Armstrong case... Once we discovered the two, we found the two dead bodies, 
we had tracked Shad and his girlfriends out to the San Diego area. So 3 o'clock in the morning is when we finished recovering the bodies. We called San Diego PD and said, we have these two people that we want to track. We think this is where they're living. San Diego Police Department put a, uh, I think it was a six-man homicide unit on these people along with a 24-hour surveillance team on them till we could fly out there. That's cooperation. Right, and it's it, they don't send you a bill later. It's just, yeah, It's we'll do just it. understood. We're going to work together. Right. So you're talking about the graves, the bodies that were buried in the neighbor's yard. Mm-hmm. How did you find the bodies if they're buried? Was there Were the flowers growing better in that section? That was, actually, this goes, we owe all that credit to Oro Valley Police Department, who had a cadaver dog at the time. Huh? So we brought out, Rowdy was the name of the cadaver dog. How appropriate. Yeah, and so I didn't have a lot of faith in this science either way, but the Oro Valley, again, no cost to us. They said, yeah, we'll send the handler and the dog down there. Rowdy does an area search and right where that dog indicated we dug down six feet and that was the center of the dead person's chest wow that's amazing is rowdy still around no poor rowdy got cancer and ended up dying that's you know our canine guys are amazing (laughs) yes they are so do they have another cadaver dog i don't i know that there are people out here that train them and use them i i'm not up on it because i'm not active law enforcement how long have you been retired well, uh, a little pretend, over 10 years. Pretending to be retired. Yeah, a little over 10 years. That's a long time. Right. Yeah. I know the Cochise County has a bloodhound. Mm-hmm. And, Do uh, they become cadaver <clears throat> dogs? or? I think they have to be specifically trained, and it's it's a kind of an interesting process because um, what the handlers will do is they'll come to homicide detectives and say, when you're done processing your crime scene, particularly if, like, the body's been out, and decomposing is after we're done then they get soil samples of the decomposition and use that as the training, training. aid for the dog that makes sense it makes sense it's and kind it's of just, disgusting it doesn't have a sense. great public appeal <laughs> <laughs> what do you do for a living right. <laughs> okay how does your family feel about you continuing to work 10 years after you're retired um my wife thinks it's a great idea because it gets me out of the house <laughs> So I'm not underfoot. More cases. <laughs> right. It keeps me busy and out of her way, but she's very supportive. And she's buddies with Jill Isley, my sergeant. So she knows that I'm I'm being well cared for and kept on a leash. Are there any cases that come your way that you say, no, I don't want it? No. You'll take any case. Yeah. I mean, it, well... I have to be careful what I say there. If it falls in the jurisdiction of the Pima County Sheriff's Department. Okay. So let's say it was a case that fell under, um, let's say Cochise County was investigating it. And the, the victim family came to us and said, can you guys investigate it? We would have to decline unless Cochise County said, yes, please come in. We'd like your assistance and you're, you're welcome to work through our files. So you have to be invited. You can't right. just walk in and say, hey, I am here. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's none of this. There's a new sheriff in town type thing. <laughs> Actually, there is a new sheriff in town. I wonder how that's working out. <laughs> so other than you're being motivated by, hey, really helping people, trying to trying to get to the, the, the bottom of everything, have you ever watched like on the news, and I'm thinking specifically of the Scott Peterson case. Mm-hmm. Have you ever watched the news and, you know, you know, he's guilty. There's no doubt about it. Have you ever assumed? 
Yes, I mean, especially, you know, depending on how the how the news story is presented or the facts of the case are presented, you go, yeah, that's who I'd be looking at. Yes. Yeah. And do, do you know the Drew Peterson case? Uh, vaguely. I know a little bit about it on just from watching the news and stuff. But that's one of those ones where the more you heard about it, the more you went, yeah, I'd be looking at him. Yeah, we. <laughs> I grew up with him. Oh, really? Yeah, it was it was an interesting situation. So you were the negative influence in his life. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> you know he he's. Oh, I don't even. That's a whole show. That's a whole nother show. I'm not sure I'd ever do that show. But so, how long do you think you're going to be doing this? Uh, probably as long as they'll have me. Because they'll let you do it. Right. What. It's kind of an interesting situation because when they threw this idea out here is they had to figure out where we plugged in in the sheriff's department. They had to find some authority to put us under, and we're very lucky in the sheriff's department has the sheriff's auxiliary volunteers. And these are just civilian volunteers that do a massive amount of work in support of the department. And they said, we can plug you in under the volunteer group which gives you a chain of command and everything. Because otherwise, we would just be these orphans running around really not subject to... <laughs> I mean, rules and regs didn't really apply to us except as volunteers under the auxiliary volunteers. So, so you what have to are credit the, them. What are the rules that you have to follow under that, that organization? Well, the SAVs have rules, you know, they about decorum and, uh, you know, all the things you're allowed to do and not allowed to do, what authorities you have and don't have, and, you know, things that can get you kicked out of the program. It's hard to say you can't, well, I guess you can fire a volunteer, but there are things, you know, guidelines you have to work within. And we just didn't fit under civilian because that's its own niche. You're trained. We, yeah, we didn't fit under active law enforcement. So we actually, they made a little spot for us under the volunteers who's, which is amazing because that unit supports us. They, they, you know, provide some training, but they also provide that authority. So I have a, a an administrative person in the Sheriff's Luxury Volunteers who oversees me, and then he kind of allocates me over to Jill, Sergeant Isley. So do you go to these continuing ed classes as a volunteer? Because things change. I mean, I have to do continuing ed all the time. Right. As much as we can, we do if there's educational opportunities out there. That, But unfortunately, as a volunteer, there's not a, a training budget per se. So they, okay. they can't send me to these schools like in Scottsdale or, um, you know, I pick Scottsdale because there are a lot of schools that, that just are scheduled out of there. But, you know, um, they, they which, don't have what a... What school? Thunderbird? Uh, no, that... The they had Rocky Mountain Information Network does schools up there through the Arizona Homicide Investigators Association, and there's also like we we don't have the funding to go to the annual Homicide Investigators Arizona Homicide Investigators Association conference, which is like four days of training. And so, where is that typically held? Uh, Las Vegas. Oh. Only be, it, uh, yeah, it, it, has right, that, sure. it has that connotation of a drunken, <laughs> yeah. But it's actually, uh, it's done because it's economical for everybody. The rooms are economical, um, you know, meals are economical. It's not as expensive, and it's economical to travel there. And to their credit, the, the conferences, they have raffle prizes at lunchtime and then at the close of business every day. To keep you there. To keep you in there. And they, they have significant prizes. It's worth staying in like staying. what? I want to go. Uh, they, you get uh, 
firearms, oh, okay. uh, computer systems, all kinds of things. So, so it's worth it. Yeah, and it's worth it. They keep you in the class all day. That sounds well. It's it sounds well fascinating. Yeah. yeah, it's Who, a good conference. In this uh, Rocky Mountain, Rocky Mountain Information Network is um, it's an information network that makes up the is composed of the Rocky Mountain states, and they're. Uh, they're a support network for law enforcement. And what they do is they communicate for you amongst all the Rocky Mountain states. And they have systems for, if I want to do a utility check in Utah, I call Rocky Mountain Information Network and say, can you give me the utilities for this address? You know, who's paying for the gas, water, and power? And they can do that. That's awesome. Right. So you could do that internationally maybe well you could do it nationally there's different divisions and uh, but i know rocky mountain because that's the section i'm in okay that sounds great right and you have people from all over the country go to these these trainings yes okay very cool okay we're going to throw it out there again we need a ghostwriter <laughs> we, we want somebody to help james write a book about all the things that he's been doing and things you're learning you've got a wealth of knowledge that you know could be shared with people who are trying to learn this business right and i think that's awesome we're also looking for board members for law matters and sponsors and a grant writer we're looking for everything and if you uh have any suggestions go to lawmatters1030.org you can get in touch with us there and if you want to talk to james send me an email and i'll forward it on to him so that you can be personally in touch with him if you got a case you want work done He'll be he'll be on it. No trench coat, so no. And what else? What do you last words of wisdom? You've got thirty seconds. What are you going to tell the people about? I think it, one of the things that you have to realize is that everything you hear in the instant news is true, and law enforcement is out there twenty four seven in the background doing a lot of good things for people, and they don't realize what's going on all the time. Yeah, I. I, that's why I like to do this above and beyond segment so people understand there's a lot going on that you don't hear about. And these people are out there putting their life on the line to protect you. And you need to be nice to them. Yeah. There's a lot of quiet heroes that you just don't know about. Exactly. They're doing it because they're doing the right thing, not because they want acknowledgement. So until next week, shop local, stay safe. Hi, this is Sherry inviting you to join Law Matters live show every Saturday morning at 8. On our next show, TPD officer Jennifer Crawford talks about threat mitigation and how we can be more aware. Law Matters podcast can be found on iTunes, Google Play, and lawmatters1030.org. We can't do this without your support. Please help us continue to bring these live shows by contributing to our website on lawmatters1030.org. 